0: In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Amen. The very first thing I want to do this morning is to thank your dean and his team for the great job that they do here at the cathedral. And as I always do when I come to visit, I want you to embarrass him this morning and give him a hand of applause for his good work. And I also understand that today is the last day that the choir will be singing uh, for the year. They get their little summer break, and you may think they just come and give you beautiful music on Sunday morning. But they spend many, many hours preparing for Sunday morning. And uh, again, let's give them a, a hand of applause for their work. I have a friend um, who collects clay jars. They're not just any clay jars. They're glazed earthenware vessels that date back to colonial times. The jars look pretty ordinary, most a kind of dull gray or brown. Sometimes there's a crude figure of of a cow or an eagle painted on the side. Most of them are pretty beat up with cracks or chips, but they were shaped hundreds of years ago to contain things like milk, butter, cider, or beer, and the reason that they're so valuable is because they're antiques. They're having survived for hundreds of years stored away in somebody's barn or in their attic, and today they are much in demand by decorators, especially on the East Coast, and many of them are worth hundreds if not thousands of dollars. My friend's got about a hundred of them, and he held one up, he said, this one's worth $10,000. And I said, you've got to be kidding me. They look so ordinary, so plain. Today as we begin the season of Pentecost, we have some important reminders about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. St. Paul is writing to the Corinthians, and he politely reminds them that they are, in fact, clay jars. On the outside, ordinary earthly containers, but carrying on the inside, the treasure of God's Spirit. We have this treasure in clay jars, Paul tells us, so that it may be made clear that this extraordinary power belongs to God and does not come from us. We are vessels, plain and simple, and flawed, and yet we are also the containers for God's Spirit in the world. That is encouraging good news for us, as we look around and see this sad old world and all of its seemingly insurmountable sadness and tragedy. It's good news because it means that we don't have to solve all these problems by ourselves. If we place ourselves in God's hands, we become the vessels through which God can work to accomplish God's purposes. I remember once talking to a very wise priest, one of the first women to be ordained in the Episcopal Church, and I asked her, where do you get all of the energy to do your work? I don't know. She said, it's kind of a mystery to me, and more often than not, after I have preached a really good sermon or made an important decision or have been leading people in a moving prayer, I'll say to myself, where did that come from? Has that ever happened to you? Where did that come from? Well, it comes from God. It comes from God's Spirit working in us. Paul's words to us churchy clay jars led me to reflect on my own time in ministry, which is now rapidly coming to a close. I've been very mindful of my own failings as one of God's clay pots. Some of you may even think crackpot, but also the great privilege it has been to be called as a vessel of God's grace. This is the last time that I will be making an official visitation to the cathedral and presiding at a confirmation as the diocese has begun that long process of transition that will lead to my retirement in March. Now, that seems like a long way away, but I have about 30 more churches to say goodbye to between now and then. Now, having said that, I still plan to be here for Christmas and assorted ordinations and for a last farewell on March 2nd, just before the consecration of the new bishop. And I will probably have him or her in tow with me on that occasion. But today is my last official visitation. So even as we hear today about the coming of the Holy Spirit and what is expected of us in the future, I need to say something about the past and my time with you. When I leave office, I will have been your bishop for about 15 years. That means quite a few visits to the cathedral. And during that time, I have seen many changes. I've seen the completion of the repairs of this, this building after the great fire. I've seen parishioners come and go. Some of them, like Veda Roseberry or Dick George and Robert Gigio, Gigio, practically became members of my family. There have been three deans, two acting deans, and an assortment of assisting clergy on my watch. But some things haven't changed the cathedral continues to be a focal point for social action in the center of Phoenix, as well as an important venue for the arts and music, and not just on First Fridays. And I have also seen much growth as you have taken on many new ministries, especially those involving the larger community. One of my themes as bishop has been that the church grows not by looking inward on ourselves, but outwards as it strives to serve the needs of those people outside these four walls. And by now, you've probably heard my favorite quote from the former Archbishop of Canterbury, William Temple, who remarked that the church that lives for itself dies by itself. And that's why I rejoice in the community programs that you were doing, such as your holiday feeding programs, your sponsorship of La Trinidad Congregation, your partnership with Garfield School. Those are just a few examples. Trinity is very much alive, the most so when it reaches out to others in Phoenix. I've tried to make community outreach a theme of my episcopacy as well. First, by planting new churches. And we can rejoice in knowing that the Diocese of Arizona has planted more new congregations than any other diocese in the country. And that we are one of 20 dioceses out of 110 which are growing in membership. And we do this, I believe, not only through church planting, but by recruiting visionary and energetic clergy like your current dean. We do this on a diocesan level by spending a lot of time and money on children and youth. And we do this by encouraging our clergy to get out of their studies and onto the streets where we are not afraid to stand with people who are different than we are and who are underserved by the church. Like Pope Francis I prefer a church which is bruised, hurting, and dirty because it has been out on the streets rather than a church which is unhealthy from being confined and from clinging to its own security. Now, this diocese is getting ready to start a new chapter in its history as you select a new leader. And you are all going to be involved in that process. You will all have the chance this fall to come to what's called a walkabout, to meet the final candidates. And then on October 20th, your elected delegates to convention, along with your clergy, will vote for the person they believe is called to serve you. Like any transition process, this change can be a bit anxiety-producing although I'll probably be the calmest person around because I have absolutely nothing at all to do with it. Still, it is an exciting process as well. For selecting a new bishop is not just about finding a new person, and it's certainly not about saying goodbye to me. It's all about continuity, what we call the apostolicity of the church, Did you know that the ancient form of church government, the episcopacy, is the oldest continuous form of governance in the world? There were bishops before there were presidents, prime ministers before there were even kings. We make a big deal out of the fact that every four or eight years we have an orderly transfer of power in the United States. Well, the church has been doing that now for almost 2,000 years. And you all are part of that process because you're the family of God, which dates itself back to the time of the apostles. And that is truly something to feel proud about and to celebrate. Just as you can have confidence in this transition process I believe that you can also have confidence in the future of the Episcopal Church overall. We have lived through some tough times. Like all American religious organizations, our larger church has lost membership and money in the past generation. The political and social struggles that we went through over sexuality issues are only partly to blame. What has had a much greater effect is the American distrust of any organization and an approach to religion which you have all heard, I'm sure, from your family and friends. I'm spiritual, but not religious. I believe in God, I pray, but I've got no use for the church. It's not easy to, it's a not an easy task to convince such people that their spiritual lives are best lived out in community. And not just any community, but a place where they are going to find generosity, prayerfulness, and compassion for others. And you can take heart in learning that recent studies place a new value on inner-city congregations like this one. It seems like places like this can offer New young urbanites, what they are looking for, a close-knit, supportive community in the midst of downtown anonymity. On my visitations this year, I've been talking a lot about a topic at the forum time, which has interested me for quite a while, namely the question of why the early church, say the church of the first, oh, 400 years or so, grew so fast. Well, today, all religious organizations in this country are in decline. Well, we didn't have time for a forum this morning, but here's the short answer. The early church had none of the things that we today think are necessary for church growth. They had no money, no social standing, no buildings, and no dogma. But they did have hospitality prayerfulness, a rigorous formation process or pathway to membership, they had courage to stand up to a corrupt and evil society, and most of all, they had a theology of patience, knowing that God was in charge of the church and not them. They expected God to act. God did, and God will. As Paul reminds us, by earthly standards, these early Christians didn't have much to offer. Most were poor, uneducated. They were hardly the rich and powerful and beautiful people of the ancient world. But they were valuable in the same way my friends' colonial clay jars are valuable. They survived under pressure. They did the daily chores and they contained great things. We are now entering that season of the church year when our theme is the coming of the Holy Spirit and the ministry of the church. Pentecost is hence a time for looking forward and looking outward, but it's also a time for looking back, and this is true as much for the church as it is for individuals like me. This backward-looking doesn't mean nostalgia for how we imagine things used to be, the church like it was in the 1950s. It's rather a looking back to the ways that God has sustained us as people and as an institution from the very beginning. And when we do that, all the trials and tribulations we have suffered as the people of God begin to fade in the light of the risen Christ. This brings us back to Paul's admonition to not worry about our limitations as fragile and flawed vessels of the Holy Spirit, but to rejoice in the fact that we have been called to lives that proclaim Christ. We may not look like much on the outside, but we are precious. We are precious for the work that we do and the spirit that we carry. Paul says, for we do not proclaim ourselves. We proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your slaves for Jesus' sake. And we have this treasure in clay jars so that it may be made clear that this extraordinary power belongs to God and does not come from us. God has chosen you and me to model in our own lives what it means to love God and to love one's neighbor. This task may seem at first overwhelming. It means, for instance, that you can't pass that responsibility on to somebody else. It's not the clergy's job to model a Christian life. It's your job. But that's a wonderful thing because it means that no matter what your physical or mental or emotional limits, each of you contains the power to help remake the world in the image of Christ. What a high calling that is, and what an honor it has been for me to be on this adventure with you. It has been, in fact, the greatest pleasure and honor of my life to have served you as your bishop. And although I will soon be retired... I look forward to hearing more of how you in this place will continue to be the vessels to bring the transforming spirit of Jesus Christ to downtown Phoenix and to the world. May God continue to bless this holy place, and may God bless you, the men and women of Trinity Cathedral. Amen.